Well, do keep your Bibles open or that passage we've read before you as we come to look at it. We've taken time to read the whole of the chapter again. This is the third week we've been looking at this chapter. Uh, You'll see if you're here the first time that what has precipitated this particular flow of teaching has been a miracle performed by Peter uh, and John outside the temple that has resulted in a man being made completely well, receiving perfect health. In fact, there's the language that's used to describe the man's condition. And from that miracle in chapter 3, we have this teaching at the end of the chapter, then into chapter 4. In fact, most of chapters 3 and 4 flow out of this one action of Peter's at the beautiful gate of the temple. Now, the world is naturally skeptical of miracles because often the claims to such are questionable or unverifiable, to say the least. Christian people, on the other hand, are often mesmerized uh, by by miracles, eager to believe every report and embrace every rumor as if their faith depended on it. But let me remind you that the Bible is far more circumspect than we are on the subject. Miracles are in the Bible, but they're not everywhere in the Bible. Miracles take on a variety of forms in Scripture, but usually they have an instructional or a teaching value to them. People get healed in the Bible, but not everybody gets healed. People get sick, and some people die. In fact, most people die. In fact, everybody dies. Even Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, was going to die again. It was just one of those things. Jesus feeds 5,000 people with a little boy's lunch on one occasion. And on another occasion, he sits in the living room having a very long conversation with Mary while Martha's in the kitchen getting frustrated with the time it's taking to get dinner ready. Who knew? That's the way it is in the Bible. Miracles are there, but they're not everywhere. Miracles come at specific times in order to demonstrate something of God's purposes in the world. So for the, for the encouragement and relief of every Christian person, let me say this right at the beginning. I've said it before, but I want to make it absolutely clear so that no one gets the wrong message. The only miracles you have to believe in, the only miracles you have to believe in, are the ones in the Bible. Other miracles may happen. God bless you if they have and do. That's That's great. They'll mean a lot to you and they'll mean a lot to other people. But the only ones that you are to believe, that you have to believe, is this, are these miracles that we find in the Bible. So you can see, I think you can see just from the amount of text, if you lift your Bible up and see how much text is involved in the description of the miracle and then the after miracle or the aftermath of the miracle, you will see the disproportion in terms of textual content, but also you'll see that this miracle is important in the bigger story of what God is doing in the world. In particular, this miracle, through it, Peter is able to give the people of Jerusalem one more opportunity to understand the identity of the one they have rejected and the seriousness of their situation before God. Uh, Last time as we were looking at this chapter, we we began at verse 11 and we we noticed that in that section beginning in verse 11, Peter ties himself to an outline of 
effectively an outline of Isaiah chapters 52 and 53. Kind of walks through those verses with them, exclaiming that this Jesus who has been raised from the dead is the one that God has glorified. Isaiah had said that uh, the servant of the Lord would be glorified, he'd be exalted, he'd be made very high, he'd been given status, equivalent to the status that God himself possessed. But Isaiah went on to say that this very figure who will be exalted will be despised and rejected, and so Peter says, uh, this figure, this servant that God has glorified, you disowned, you disowned him, you rejected him. And yet God, in spite of all of that, has identified him as being not only the servant of the Lord, but the holy, righteous servant of the Lord. He is the holy one, the righteous one. You wanted the murderer in his place, but God says he is not only righteous and holy, but he is the, he is the author of life, the opposite of a murderer. He is the life giver. And then to demonstrate all of that, God justified Jesus by raising him from the dead. The resurrection was his justification. It was God's way of saying, I called him righteous. A righteous man could not suffer the curse and death and stay that way by reversing the curse of death and by raising him from the dead. I'm demonstrating that Jesus is in fact righteous. He's not like everyone else who is unrighteous, for whom the wage of sin is death. Jesus is justified by his being raised from the dead, and it's because of his justification that he is able to justify everybody who believes in him. That's the teaching particularly of the Apostle Paul. And what Peter says to these people is this. Here's a living proof. Here's this man you saw him every day when you were going into the temple. You remember what he was like. All of his 40 plus years of life have been like this from his mother's womb. And here today you see him in perfect health. The God who raised Jesus raised this man to perfect health. So there's Peter's argument. And the interesting thing is that as Peter begins to explain the miracle, we discover that what he's doing is he's going beyond the physical act of the miracle. In fact, he says to the people, don't, don't look at the miracle so much as what the miracle points to. This man is exhibit A in the argument that God has intended to deal with the human problem. And he's going to deal with the problem in the name of Jesus. There's going to be no other way to deal with humanity's problems apart from the name. That is everything that is connected to the name. Everything that is subsumed in the name of Jesus. His character, his work, everything that he is and does, everything that he has accomplished is collected into that phrase, the name of Jesus. And the instrument, he goes on to argue, and we notice that just at the end of the section in verse, in verse 16. The instrument by which the name of Jesus accomplishes his work in the world is your faith. Your faith is the instrument by which all of the power of Jesus is delivered to you. Well, it's at this point then that Peter, in verse 17, addresses the crowd and the fears that have undoubtedly been raised within the crowd. Perhaps this means, therefore, that we're all about to be obliterated. If this is true of Jesus, then we deserve to be obliterated. What's, what is next? If we killed 
the righteous one. If we asked that the righteous one be replaced by a murderer and released, then what hope do we have? And so Peter says, and now, and now, brothers, not Christian brothers, but Jewish brothers, and now I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. He's talking to them as Jews, and he has just made this series of accusations against them. They're powerful accusations. He isn't retracting those accusations. But he says they did it out of ignorance when they rejected Christ. It wasn't excusable ignorance. It wasn't invincible ignorance. This is, it's an admission that they didn't recognize who Jesus was, but that didn't reduce their culpability or the seriousness of their behavior. Therefore, they need to repent. The fact that he goes on to say, repent, shows that they're responsible for their actions, even their ignorance. But nonetheless, he's saying that God is going to overlook their ignorance and give them the opportunity to repent. Now, the book of Acts makes a number of things clear about the events surrounding the death of Jesus that the rulers, number one, were the driving force behind it. Two, that those who killed Jesus acted in ignorance, not appreciating all the implications of what they were doing. Thirdly, that the condemnation of the Jews is limited to the Jerusalemite Jews. Third, fourthly, that the Gentiles shared the guilt, along with Jews, for the death of Jesus. And fifthly, that it was all part of God's plan. So follow with me as we look at the gospel initiative. There's the first thing. He tells them, God foretold these things. Verse 18, what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So there you have it, he says, it was God's initiative. It was the gospel initiative. He's already referred to Isaiah 53 which has this exalted figure being despised, rejected, dying in the place of sinners, suffering death for them, and then being raised again to the place of power. He has it all there in Isaiah 53, and he's mentioned that. Or he could have mentioned the book of Psalms. If you read the book of Psalms as one book, five books in one, you'll discover that there is a movement in the book of Psalms as the righteous person and the king are hounded, disowned, rejected, and it gets miserable at some points in the Psalms. It gets very miserable, and you can only read them if you're in a really good mood, because if you read them when you're in a bad mood, you'll put your head in a gas oven, so be careful. So there they are, and, and there's this flow. Things get really bad for the person who's writing the Psalms. But then as you read the whole, read them all in one sitting. It doesn't take that long. Several hours. Maybe not even as much as that. But if you read them all in one sitting, you'll see there's this movement from what God says in the introduction in Psalms 1 and 2 about the righteous man and God's king and what God's going to do, and then the experience of both the righteous man and God's king as, as they go down into the depths, as they're despised and rejected, until you get to the end of the Psalms, and it's all glory, all glory, all exaltation, all praise. The whole flow of the book as a whole is this, suffering glory, suffering glory. And you don't only see it within the book as a whole, you see it in individual Psalms. You see it in Psalm 
22 where the rejected righteous sufferer is abandoned by God, abandoned by others. He's pierced in his hands and his feet while others gamble for his clothes and mock his sufferings until eventually he knows life after death and triumph over his enemies. Or Psalm 69 where the righteous man is hated without a cause so that he becomes a stranger to his brothers. Why is this? Because he tells us zeal for the house of God has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach God have fallen upon him. Well, once again, Peter emphasizes that throughout the Old Testament there's this movement, suffering glory. And whenever you read that movement, you're being told about the coming of God's Messiah. So there's a divine initiative. God's behind it. God's plan is being fulfilled in his anointed, his Christ. And then in verses 19 through 21, we have a, we have a, a bunch of teaching that really we can't avoid, we can't afford to avoid to breaking it down in its constituent elements because what he's doing here is picking up on a theme that he introduces in chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. The theme is that the last days has arrived with the coming of his, uh, the coming of the Spirit, but that that does not mean the end of history as we know it. The New Testament writers had, had, uh, had a proper sense of what we call the already and the not yet, the things that we have already because of our relationship with God through Christ and the things that we don't yet have because of our relationship with God in Christ. He gets into this by proclaiming a word to them, the gospel imperative, repent, therefore, and turn. Again, he uses these two words, repent and turn. Repentance involving a change of direction, changing one's mind about where one is. These people had then, uh, no less than people today, needed to alter their view of Jesus. They had to turn their view of Jesus right round. And then the second word, to turn, makes the same point, but highlights the idea of ending up in line with God ending up going in God's direction. Repent, change your mind, turn, go in God's direction. Earlier on, he's uh, emphasized the relationship between uh, coming to Christ and faith. He's mentioned that in verse 16. We're to see this as another way of saying the same thing. Turn from the view of Jesus you have to trusting in him, looking to him, believing in him, resting on him. In other words, the New Testament has a variety of expressions that it uses to describe the need to respond, respond to the gospel, the good news of Jesus. So you have the gospel imperative. And then thirdly, gospel initiative, imperative, the gospel indicative. Well, what happens when I turn to God in Christ? Well, he describes that there are two consequences, one immediate, one ultimate. There's an immediate benefit. Do you notice that? Repent, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. Now, this is another way of describing the forgiveness of your sins. In the Old Testament Greek, the word is used for people being blotted out of God's book. God has a book. It's a book of life. And people's names are blotted out of that book. They're not forgiven. If they're not forgiven, they're blotted out of that book. 
Then the same word is used in a prayer of David uh, when he's praying in Psalm 51. As a result of his own bad record, he's crying to God that God would blot out of his book his sins. Lord, blot out my transgressions, he prays. Now, the word means to wipe away something, to erase it, to obliterate it. It was the word used in the ancient world for washing papyri, uh, to remove letters written, written in ink. In those days, they didn't, have it, they didn't have permanent ink. And so ink lay on the surface of a document, and you could remove it relatively straightforwardly. And so it became a metaphor, a metaphor for forgiveness. And what Peter is saying to this crowd and what he's saying to you this evening is that turning to God in Christ offers you the opportunity to have the penalty and even the record of your sin removed utterly, utterly. Can you imagine this? You know, I don't know anything more difficult to get people to believe than what Peter says to these guilty people in Jerusalem who have only weeks before cried for the blood of the Messiah of God. He's saying to these people, who only weeks before have bathed for the blood of Jesus Christ, if you repent, if you turn to Him, if you trust in Him, God will obliterate that from your record. He will expunge it from the books. It will be wiped away, removed utterly. Every word of it gone, finally, fully, completely. And there are people who have been hearing this all their lives. And they don't get it. The penny doesn't drop. The penny doesn't get through. Here we are. We struggle with guilt. We struggle with a problem of guilt. Guilt points us, I think, to the root of all human ill. That is our sin. Many people are still trying to make themselves feel at peace about their own past. Many people are trying, struggling with their own record, as it were, of failure, one kind or another, trying to overcome it by working hard or uh, being generous to a fault and and they're unhappy, they're, they're unhappy with their Lord, and they're unhappy in their marriage, and they're unhappy with themselves, and they're making everybody around them unhappy because they cannot accept the pardon of their God. I think it's Tim Keller uses an illustration of, of a Coke machine in his building in, in New York where he lives, and his wife gave him the illustration. Actually, all the best illustrations preachers get are from their wives. Sometimes their wives are the illustration, though that's dangerous ground. Anyway, he, he, t he talks about this Coke machine, and uh, it was this Coke machine for as long as they lived in that building. They put money in this machine and the pressed the button, nothing happened. You could put the money in, press the button, nothing happened. What you had to do is you had to hit it and kick it. Then the Coke can came. And the point... I think the point was simply this. The point was that sometimes the gospel doesn't get in when you put the money in and press the button. I do that every Sunday. I put the money in, press the button, and you don't get it. 
So sometimes I have to do a bit of hitting and kicking before you get the message. You have to have, you know, bounced around a little bit so that it gets through, so the penny drops. Here's Peter doing it again this evening. Now hear it this night. You won't. Some of you will have to come back and get this over and over again for the rest of your lives or mine, whichever one ends quicker. And, and here's, here's the issue. Here's what he's saying to these people. There is an immediate benefit from repentance, and it is that God in Christ obliterates, blots out, wipes away, removes, expunges everything that is written against you. Everything written against you. He tore it up, cancels it by his death on the cross. That's good news. That's gospel. That's the news you need to hear and believe and embrace by trusting in the Lord Jesus. Why anyone would not want that news, I don't know. But there it is. It's free at the point of delivery. You just simply rest on him. So there's an immediate benefit. That's a real benefit, isn't it? Then the secondly, there's an ultimate benefit. Look how he puts this. So first of all, the blotting out of sin. And then in verse 20, another thing, this time looking forward in time, times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Messiah, the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. The times and the seasons. There are two words involved here in the Greek, kairoi and chronoi. Kairos, chronos. Both translated by the word times. So the ESV isn't quite as good as we thought it was. Right here. Times and seasons. So Luke refers to the times of the Gentiles, that is the present era, in Luke 21. And in Acts chapter 1, a question is raised as to whether this was the time to restore the kingdom to Israel, looking into the future. And the answer to that question was, this isn't the time. This isn't for you to know the times or the seasons. That's something that's above your pay grade. Only God knows that. But I think these two expressions of time probably refer to the one period that is that one long extended period that revolves around the return of the Lord Jesus at the end of history. So what Peter is saying is this. He's telling us that by believing in Jesus, we enter into the entire plan program of God from start to finish. We become part of the act. We get written into the story of God. We get written into the big story of God. We become players in the story. We're in the script that God has written for history and eternity. We become characters in that story. From being nobodies, suddenly we have parts in the great drama of redemption. Not only are sins blotted out, but we share in the fullness of the blessing of the coming age, which he describes as times of refreshing and the time for the restoration of all things. What is that coming age like? It's a time of refreshing. The word denotes rest or, or a cooling. You may know one of those really, really hot Philadelphia days when it's, over, when it's in the hundreds and, and you come in out of the heat and you cool off. There is relief. Or you go to the shore and you dive into the ocean and there is relief 
That's what this word means. It's refreshing, relief. Sometimes it's, it's used about relieving trouble or drying out a wound, a wound and, and the soothing of Saul by David's music when he played or the Sabbath rest that is waiting the people of God or, or the relief from the plagues of Egypt. That's what it means, times of refreshing. The nearest thing, I think, in the rest of the New Testament to what this word means uh, are the words in Hebrews chapter 3 where it says, There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Times of refreshing. And along with those times of refreshing, the completion of God's plan with Christ's return. Notice how he puts it. God will send the Messiah appointed for you. Right now, he hasn't sent him. Right now, he's in heaven. Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for the restoring of all things. Where is Jesus now? He's in heaven. The Spirit of Jesus is here. His Holy Spirit is with you wherever you go. But Jesus is spatially in heaven in one place because he inhabits a body. You can only be in one place in a human body, Jesus. And his humanity is only in one place, and that is exalted at the Father's right hand in heaven. And he must wait there until the day appointed by his Father when he will return from there. The second coming is, is often described as, as an appearance or the presence of Jesus. It's a day when he will appear, and when he appears, he will be present. It will be splendid. It will be glorious. It will be beyond our imagination. You will not need someone to say, did you see the news this morning? Jesus is back. Everybody at one time, past, present, future, everybody in the, in the globe, in the universe, will in one moment of time see Jesus in the splendor of his Father's glory. He will appear and be present. And it will be splendid and personal and glorious on that day. This is, this is where history is going. You see, this is a Christian view of history that Peter is teaching these people. He's saying history is not cyclical. History is going somewhere. There is a destiny and a destination to history. It's moving in the direction of this great momentous day of the Lord. Lo, he comes with clouds descending. Once for favored sinners slain, thousand, thousand saints attending, swell the triumph of his train. Hallelujah! Jesus comes and comes to reign. That's where history is going. And on that day he will send, you see, God will send the Messiah appointed for you, Jesus. When he comes, not only will there be refreshment, not only will we enter the Sabbath rest of the people of God, but there will be seasons, the seasons of the restoration of all things. You see, he's pointing to this, this man. He wants you to learn from this healed man that you can be perfectly whole spiritually by having your sins blotted out. He wants you to learn that. But he wants you to know more. As you look at this healed man, you look at those ankles and feet that now work. You look at the muscle that has been rebuilt. You look at the neural pathways that are now working. You are seeing in this man, you are seeing a visual aid of the restoration of all things. And what he says is, this is what the prophets spoke about. 
This is what they talked about. This is what Isaiah talked about in Isaiah 34. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away. The skies shall roll up like a scroll. All the starry hosts shall fall. Why? For behold, I create new heavens and new earth, says the Lord. The former things will not be remembered. Be glad and rejoice, he says. No more shall there be heard the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall it be that an infant lives only for a few days, that an old man dies and doesn't fill out his days, or the young man die, or the sinner, or they build houses and don't get to live in them, or plant vineyards and don't get to drink the wine they produce. No longer will any of that be true. Things will be transformed. Behold, they'll call and I will answer, and the wolf and lamb shall graze together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food, and they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. That's the destination. It's the restoration of the universe marred by sin, a planet destroyed by sin. My, My American daughter was just saying to me, yesterday, that as they were flying back from from California, where they were visiting uh, the other side of the family, they were flying back, and as they were flying over the the vastnesses of the the west of the United States, seeing just how great, how huge this country is, and from the air, seeing how small A car can be, and in that car, a person, virtually invisible to the naked eye, from the height at which she was flying. What struck her, she said, was the enormous impact that the smallest little creatures have made on this enormous planet in which we live. Of course, the physical impact is one thing. The spiritual impact is another. But now it's the restoration of all things. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 19. Truly I say to you, in the new world, you will see the Son of Man sit on a glorious throne. Or Paul writes about it in Romans 8. The whole creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. It's going to be an amazing time. And our little Andrew, our younger son, was seven. We took him to London Zoo, and he stood, for, he stood for hours looking at the tigers. He loved the tiger. The tiger just seemed to communicate with him. I think he thought the tiger had seen him, noticed him, and loved him back. Certainly, the love going from Andrew to that tiger was palpable and real. About a week later, we're back home, and I'm putting him to bed and saying his prayers, and he says to me, Daddy... I can't wait till the new world when I get to hug a tiger. He'd got the message, actually, of the restoration of all things. I don't know if he'd read Isaiah at age seven, but he'd got Isaiah's message, hadn't he? He'd understood this great global cosmic transformation that comes when Jesus comes. What's the gospel incentive? Here's my fourth point. What does all this mean? 
Well, it means we're to think again about Jesus. We, we're to repent. We're to think again about what he's done. And he finishes, really, this little section by pointing us to the messianic promise and God's covenant commitment. He talks about God's messianic promise. He talks about Moses. He said, the Lord, Moses said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers, and you will listen to whatever he tells you. God would raise up this prophet. Do you know the word to raise up this prophet? This word to raise up is the same word that's used of raising up the lame man. It's the same word that's used of God raising up Jesus in resurrection. Now, no doubt when Moses said it, he was thinking perhaps of Joshua, but of course God had other things in mind, and ultimately Moses was referring to Jesus whom God would raise up. And Samuel, well, he talked about it too, apparently. Peter says, whenever Samuel anointed King David as the one on whom God was going to establish his kingdom, he was announcing the intention of God that he would bless his people through the house of David. It would be of David's line. So Paul, introducing the gospel in Romans chapter 1, says that he's writing about Jesus Christ, who, according to the flesh, was a descendant of David. What did Moses do? Moses was the great leader who led the people of God out of Egypt, across the river, to the banks of the Jordan to lead them into the promised land. He never got to go over, but he brought them to the Jordan, got them all ready to go into the promised land. But Jesus is a greater than Moses. Jesus takes us all the way to the garden city paradise in the renewed universe that God has prepared for his people. Well, he talks about that promise, and then he goes on to talk about God's covenant commitment that underlies all of this. Peter says, you're the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. What was Abraham on about? Well, what was God on about to Abraham when he said he was going to bless the earth through his offspring? Well, God was talking to Abraham about a singular offspring, the Messiah, Jesus. And he was talking about universal blessing that would come to the world through the Messiah, Jesus. And what was that universal blessing? It is the pardoning and the blotting out of sins now, immediately, and ultimately, the restoration of all things. See, God has only ever had one plan. The plan he announced to Abraham, Peter re-announces on the day of Pentecost, and here he's repeating it again to these people. God has only ever had one plan, and his plan centers around the Lord Jesus Christ. And salvation is in him. Now, I want you to see, this is what Peter is getting at in this whole section. We, we noticed this before. I repeat it very briefly as we close. In its contextual context, you see, he's done this miracle. He says, right, I've done the miracle, but this is what God's teaching through it. Focus on the teaching. Focus on Christ. Focus on the gospel. What is the good news of the gospel? It's Jesus. 
News is something you say, something you speak. You know, some people use careless language. They talk about being the gospel. You can't be the gospel. You can't be the gospel because Jesus was and is the gospel. He is the good news. You can't be perfect, the holy, sinless, righteous Son of God, and die for the sins of people. You can't be good news to anybody. But you can speak the gospel. You can announce the news. Jesus is the news. We simply announce the news. This is what he has done. This is what he has accomplished. Jesus is the gospel. We announce the gospel. And let's be clear. There will be no restoring of the kingdom, no times of refreshing, no restoration of all things until the second coming of Christ. So let's give up our wishful thinking and our following of the latest fads or even explicit statements thinking somehow or other that it's possible for us to transform the world now. We can't transform the world now. That's a job far too big for you and me. We can preach the gospel now, and God can bring about saving effects in the lives of people, and he can even have social effects in the world, but those are not the gospel. This is the gospel. This is what the church stands for. And what happened to this man standing perfectly healthy is nothing compared to what God is going to do for you and for me when the Lord Jesus returns. Get this. Tonight you can leave this room knowing that your sins have been blotted out of God's book, every one of them, pardoned, no longer condemned, You don't need to condemn yourself because the pardon's been given. And you have to look forward to the time of the restoration of all things when God makes the world as perfect as he's planned it to be. Let's pray. Father, we pray that in these moments now as we come to lay hold of uh, bread and wine, very tangible things, things which are as tangible and visible to our sight as that walking, leaping, praising man who'd been healed by Peter and John so long ago. As you put these visible things, these tangible things into our hands, in our mouths, before our eyes, we pray that all the words we've heard, the words of the gospel, would come ministering to our hearts to the praise of your glory. Amen.